Episode number 26. We need to talk about this deadly American trend of having mass shootings. I have an expert joining me to help shed light on this subject. This is the Crime School Radio Show. Where industry experts discuss the business of fighting crime and prevention strategies for making places safe. Leading today's discussion is security expert Chris McGoey. Welcome to Crime School. It's been about three weeks since that mass shooting in San Bernardino County in Southern California. If you recall, it happened on December 2nd, 2015, where a husband and wife entered a holiday party and started firing. They fired off 65 to 75 rounds in four minutes or less and fled before the police arrived. Fourteen people had been killed and 22 seriously injured. This incident occurred 40 miles from my office, so it is almost in my backyard. So many of my clients and new clients are calling, wondering, what can we do? Is this the first of many to come? Is Islamic terrorism now going to be a commonplace thing in Southern California? If you follow this trend in mass shootings, you know for the last 15 years they've been occurring at an escalating rate of more than one per month, and the numbers of people killed and injured is astounding. So it is not unfounded for people to be concerned. Most of my contacts have been with people who operate large venues where they have big crowds, major events, and they're wondering, are we going to be a target? What can we do? The fact pattern makes it different than most past shootings. In this case, there was two individuals instead of one. The vast majority of mass shooters are solo operations. Most mass shooters are male. 98% or more are males. In this case, there was a woman directly involved. Mr. Farouk was married. In my memory, this is the first time we had a married couple engage in mass shootings in the United States. Mr. Farouk worked for San Bernardino County in their health division. He was invited to this holiday party, so he knew all the employees. He had access. He wouldn't appear suspicious because he worked there. He knew that the party was held at a soft target. He was familiar with all the access points and escape routes. And he planned this Islamic Jihad for at least a year. He purchased weapons in advance. He purchased fatigues and military-type clothing, maybe body, body armor, guns, ammunition. He had vehicles. He had escape planning. He made planning with his computer and his cell phones. So a lot of thought went into it. Ordinary employees who operate day-to-day without and never having a single incident are not set up for dealing with this intentional assault and this intentional attack with inside information. Now, as I look back at the history of these mass shootings, oftentimes you hear experts on the 24-hour news cycle chiming in with opinions about what's causing it, what's at the root of it. And more times than not, we hear talk about, well, it's a mental health issue, or it's a gun control issue, 
or it's an immigration issue. Now, in my world as a security consultant, I work with physical facilities more times than not. I work with planning. I work with risk analysis, putting systems in place, barriers, controlling access, a lot of physical things and, and training, almost from a workplace violence standpoint. I got to tell you, these mass shooting incidents that seem to come out of right field that are illogical are very difficult to get our arms around. So I thought on today's show, it'd be important to get an expert in here. One more opinion about what might be motivating these people. What's driving them? And maybe if we can get our arms around that, maybe we can begin as a society, as a, as a state, as a county, as a city, to maybe intervene somehow and stem the tide of these escalating mass shooting incidents. So I invited back a guest on my show who was here just two weeks ago. He spoke to us about active shooter survival. You might remember his name is Jim Kaywood. He's an old friend of mine. He's been in practice on his own for more than 30 years. He started out as a security consultant and private investigator like I did way back when. But then his focus quickly turned to threat assessment and violence risk assessment and behavioral analysis. He's a former police officer, so he has training on the law enforcement side. He has several college degrees. He has a master's degree in forensic psychology, and he's a PhD candidate also in psychology. And his dissertation is on these mass shootings and what's motivating these mass shooters. Mr. Kaywood has written a book entitled Violence Assessment and Intervention, written chapters for other people's books. He speaks extensively around the world talking about this subject of risk assessment, workplace violence, and behavioral analysis. So I thought no one better to come on the show today and give us some ideas, give us some talking points about what might be motivating these individuals. And once we understand that, maybe we could begin, even as a society or as a state or county, to begin formulating some plans that might get to the heart of these issues. Because we can't keep going on the same path that we are. So stay with me. Let me get Jim Kaywood on the line and we'll get off into this. This is the Crime School Radio Show. After a short break, we will introduce today's special guest. Welcome back. I have my guest, Jim Kaywood, on the line. You know, I was thinking this morning when I was preparing to do this show that you and I have known each other for, man, we're pushing about 30 years, aren't we? We are, actually, at this point. I mean, I, I always feel like I'm one of the old dogs out there now uh, doing this work, but you've actually been out there longer than I have. I remember when I first started, you were already doing this security consulting thing. I was, and, uh, and violence has been a part of that practice since almost the beginning. So, uh, and violence management. So it's a, yeah, it's it's interesting to see how what was originally thought just to be a one-off uh, was going to be one of those rare things that happened during your 
economic life or during your personal life, you're going to have one assault, you're going to have one battery, you're going to have one shooting, um, and it was going to be rare, uh, like you would a flood or a fire. And now we find out that, you know, guess what? This goes on a lot more than we think. So. Yeah, they're definitely escalating since 2000 or so. I know you read all the literature. You're, you're, this is really a specialty of yours more so than mine. And I know you read all the studies and the literature. And a while back, the FBI published a study uh, with the University of Houston, I think it was, Texas State. On the uh, mass shooting incidents and the increase in mass murders uh, in organizational settings that have occurred, even though the numbers of shootings for um, single homicides have stayed fairly even um, and actually gone down uh, since the early 90s per year basis. So, yeah, the mass murders have, the numbers of three or more being killed in a single incident have all gone up and kind of exponentially. And so it's an interesting phenomenal change. And of course, San Bernardino was the perfect example of that, where we had so many dead and wounded. Not one that was unforeseeable in the sense that we all recognize it actually in the practical aspects of it, in terms of an individual showing up with a weapon on site uh, to commit murder. Whether or not one was killed or three or four or five were killed is as much a matter of luck and a circumstance as it is anything else. Certainly, I can't think of a single shooter in my experience, and I stopped counting at 4,500 cases I've worked in this area. I can't think of a single shooter where I'm aware of that they showed up with the sole intent of only killing one person and then stopping right there. Who ends up dead and who ends up wounded sometimes is uncontrollable once it, once the shooting starts. So. so let's put it in some kind of context. This FBI study mm -hmm. and with the, uh, the Texas State University, they came up with about 160 incidents between yep. the year 2000-2013. So if you just do a straight average for 13 years, that's 11.4 incidents per year. Mm -hmm. So it's almost one a month. It is. And, and now it'd even be higher as we get into two, two, uh, 2015. Of those incidents, there was 1,043 people either killed or wounded. Yeah. Actually, 486 were killed out of 160 incidents. So your point is is right on that these individuals are coming in trying to do as much damage as possible and 557 wounded. So yeah. these are, these are incredible uh, numbers. And you and I have felt because of the work we do, we felt that these things were coming for a long time. Well, I think we always were concerned that it was going to be a building phenomenon, um, and yet we've seen that this phenomenon is not really connected significantly, certainly statistically significantly, to economic conditions and other related conditions. You know, whether or not we have a downturn in 2008 or prior to that in the collapse in 2000, it's interesting when you look at the timing of these in terms of what occurs is, is there seems to be a timing separate from some of the other stressors that we'd see in the environment. And, and as a professional, ended up going back to graduate school, as you know, in forensic psychology, and now I'm a doctoral candidate in psychology and actually writing my dissertation using that mass murder sample you just talked about in terms of organizational settings and the predictive validity of certain t tools. And so, you know, I'm deep in the literature, and, and, and one of the things that the empirical literature, and one of the things that's fascinating to me is that we're beginning to see that actually the rhythm isn't around economics and stressors. What it is, it's, a, it's around perception 
and narcissism and depression. And so ultimately, when you're looking at these shooters, um, you're looking at virtually 100% of them having depressive elements. You're looking at uh, situations where all of them have felt a lack of control in their world and wanting to reestablish that control and being, you know, absolutely in belief that violence is going to do that for them. And many times not caring whether or not they come out of it alive. And in some cases, obviously, in the case of San Bernardino, maybe possibly even planning not to come out of it alive because that gives them an ultimate sense of control, which is what we saw in the Columbine kids uh, as well. Yeah, it's, it seems to be more of a psychological social issue. And with the increased beliefs about, you know, how special we all individually are and then what we need to do about it and how we get wounded, um, it, yeah, we, we're all concerned that this is, uh, even though the, the numbers of incidents have declined up to a certain point, the mass murders have increased, as we just talked about, and frankly, the, all of the murders are going to increase. The, the fact is, is that we're seen to have social forces that are going beyond what we've seen before that are going to change fundamentally uh, the baseline. And that's what we're all in the field are concerned about. And then, of course, what do we do about it? Because the expectation of the public has also changed. In other words, it used to be that they would accept the fact that these were going to be low-probability events, and their expectation was it was a tragedy, but we'll get through it. Now, it's interesting, particularly in Western cultures, and I go to Europe and teach on a regular basis for the European Association of Threat Assessment Professionals, the expectation in, you know, first world nations and certainly moving on to other nations that are becoming more sophisticated as it pertains to economics uh, in, in terms of quality of life and expectations of what their communities are going to do are that there won't be any incident. So at the same time that we know that this is going to increase just based on these psychosocial factors, we're also concerned that actually the expectation of the public is there shouldn't be any of these, which of course is completely unrealistic. It would be much more helpful and this goes to the issue of active shooter and what to do in it, it'd be much more helpful if the public be, uh, adopted a more realistic understanding of what they need to do, what the levels of risk are, but also then that it's going to be something they have to accept will occur and then psychologically and emotionally uh, be prepared to handle that and still move on and not allow that to disrupt their lives. Particularly in the case of terrorism, you know, the whole point is they can't beat us in an open war. So what do they do? Che Guevara talked about this in terms of his uh, philosophy uh, of guerrilla warfare. His comment was, is we don't have to defeat them. What we have to do is punish them in ways that make the structures overreact to the extent that then the public, meaning the population of that country or in the case, in the case of Che Guevara, will overthrow the government themselves. In other words, it's going to trigger such a repressive response that actually, you know, the idea is, is that, you know, people will overthrow their own rulers. And in the case of Islamic Jihad, you know, it's all about eventually getting to a caliphate where, you know, all governments are going to be religion-based and, of course, they're all going to be Islamic and not just regular Islamic or mainstream Islamic, but obviously in line with the philosophies that uh, the more radicals have. So, Well, Jim... Uh, of the 160 incidents since mm -hmm. the year 2000 through 2013, how many have been on jihad? You know, it, actually in that study, 
The only ones that are contested, obviously, are the shooting in Texas of the DOD shooting. Right. Um, where there's still contention about whether or not that was workplace violence or not a workplace violence, right? Because of his, the physician's radical beliefs. So the, but, uh, so the vast majority of our incidents so far have been homegrown type. Correct. Yeah. They have been. Yes. They've been homegrown issues around workplace or organizational related stressors uh, yeah. on that individual. That, that, that again, back that psychosocial context. And that's true across, that's even true for obviously the terrorism, what we just saw in, in San Bernardino, right? Clearly, they believed that they needed to do that too. And of course, he chose his workplace because it was the environment where he saw it as representative of the American culture. So that study itself focused on homegrown incidents. You know, 99.9% of it was homegrown incidents. Well, the, the, the other high percentage, I mean, there's uh, women are 50% of the population, right? But right. Who, who's committing these, uh, these shootings? Well, the vast majority are men. I mean, it's a, it, but that's changing. I got to tell you, Chris, when I started doing the work, uh, one tenth of one percent of my caseload was, uh, female aggressors. It is now running about 20% of my caseload. And one of the things we know about that is when you're doing the work, you have to be very careful not to become gender blind. One of the concerns we have, all professionals have, but, but the MacArthur studies, uh, of, of violence in mental health communities, this this series of longitudinal studies that was run under the MacArthur Foundation uh, grants, uh, showed that both male and female mental health professionals underestimate female physical violence almost two or three times. So in other words, it doesn't matter what gender you are as an assessor, you have a tendency to underestimate actual violence committed by females predicting that they're going to commit violence in the future by that degree because we have this unconscious stereotype that women aren't as dangerous as men. And, you know, that's just not true. And, and so ultimately, I've seen my caseload of women aggressors increase. We're certainly seeing female bombers, homicide bombers and others, assassins, uh, certainly the Red Brigade and uh, others have used female assassins because they're more effective as they're underestimated. Bader Meinhof did as well in the 80s and 70s and 80s with in Germany. So we're seeing an increase in the female population being involved in these types of things, and I think we can continue to see that. I mean, the fact is, is that I would estimate at some point in the future, it's going to be gender neutral. Huh. In other words, at some point in the future, we're going to end up in a situation where men and women are committing these acts at a fairly even rate. Well, in theory, um, then, the numbers should double, shouldn't it? Well, yeah, at least. And then, of course, we also have the the whole narcissism thing uh, changing the fundamental baseline for everyone. I mean, there's some interesting work that Twenge has done out of uh, San Diego State University. I don't know if you know it, but there's a book called uh, The Narcissism Epidemic. Um, and Twenge has done some really good work on base levels of narcissism, um, meaning self-centeredness and uh, the belief that you're special uh, and that you get wounded. Uh, it's obviously grossly exaggerated beyond just self-confidence, and you get wounded and hurt, and then be, you become reactive uh, when you're when people don't treat you as specially as you should be uh, treated in your own mind. And basically, she's run this study for 20 years with a with the uh, narcissism personality inventory with a demographically balanced sample of incoming freshmen uh, at San Diego State University for 20 years, and every year it's gone up in the last 20 years 1%. So we've had a 20% increase in 20 years 
of base level narcissism. And of course, you know, we could talk about every child getting a trophy for soccer and, you know, participating is enough and, you know, all these other things that, tr- that unrealistically have kids believe that they're all equal when actually, you know, in terms of how society grades people when they get outside of school. And of course, that's not true. And ultimately, you can be wounded. You see from the mass murder study that the socioeconomics are different. In other words, for that study, all of those were in organizational environments. In other words, all of those studies, all those mass murders were actually in workplace environments. And so, and all of them had been employed at some point. So you're, you're looking at people that have a base level of education and access to community, and community resources. They're, they have paid jobs. They have families in many cases. They have kids in many cases. And ultimately, that doesn't change this need for them to act violently in these settings. And so it's not a situation where we can say, you know, people with less advantages are going to be more likely to do this. And actually, in this population of mass murder, it's actually the people with more advantages, more education, more uh, socioeconomic levels higher that we see doing these types of mass murders in organizational settings. That's an interesting uh thing that you threw out there about narcissism. And here's an observation of mine, and tell me whether you agree or, or not, or, or maybe have more to say about it. Obviously, the statistics are showing that 98% of the active shooters are males, and they work mm-hmm. alone. And mm-hmm. there's only two cases of in, within that study where there's, there's more than one. We also see in many of these cases that these shooters come prepared. They're dressed up in, in fatigues or military-style attire, everything about them, carrying the ammo, the planning that they do, the, it almost seems like a fantasy world to me, that they're, that they're fantasizing over this, what they're going to do, and they're, and they're pre-planning, and they're, they're, they're imagining how this is going to play out. How much of this, I get asked this all the time by the media, how much of this, if any, do you think is tied to first-person active you know, shooter video games? No, that's a great question. I mean, you know, uh, Reed Malloy at the, uh, in San Diego, who's an expert on psychopathy, uh, psychopathic violent behavior, um, and has written extensively on violence risk assessment. You know, he calls those the, those people who dress up in fatigues and do this planning what we call pseudo commandos, and he talks about you know the differentiation between affective violence, which is emotional and reactive violence, to instrumental violence, which is more planned and, and purposeful. The answer is, is when you look at studies on people that are violent in environment, you recognize that desensitization and how people are become more immune to violence. And of course, that's where the video games come in. The fact is, is that the video games, there's been studies, a whole series of studies that have, have not seen any correlation between violent video game playing, the degree of violent video game playing, and physical violence in the real world. And now there's a series of studies coming out that are beginning to show some deg- some finer teasing of those factors with some potential. No one's really done a good longitudinal study um, with real-world implications in regard to that. And so we don't really know. But here's what I would say, is that from a neurophysiological and neuropsychological perspective, the fact is, is that if I am already have the other elements that are having me actively seek a reason to commit violence and I'm using active shooter, then it is directly related. In other words, we know that the Columbine uh, kids uh, were went out and practiced. We don't know about their use of video games per se, but we know that they practiced. 
Uh, we, but we do have other instances where, um, for instance, the Sandy Hook shooter did, in fact, spend a great deal of time with active shooter games. And the greater the first-person shooter concentration is, they actually can train people to be more effective shooters. I mean, we know that the Army, as an example, used to have a game on the Internet uh, where you could go in as a recruit and basically work yourself up through special forces by doing missions. Um, and they were actually using that as an active recruiting tool to identify people that would be more likely than not to be acceptable to the military environment. So even the Army has been using that as a screening tool. And that was, you know, very positive, had very positive effects for them. So, yeah. The fact is there is, there can be a relationship, but it's on a case-by-case basis. We want to see, uh, I would like to see more of the thoughts around the need for violence before and then see about how they use first-person shooter games versus assuming that every kid who's doing a first-person shooter I should start to be worried, worried about, right? Yeah, because I think the studies are showing, and you, you mentioned that early on, about there's mm-hmm. depression-related uh, yep. to these shooters. That's in Absolutely. common. Uh, they seem to be loners many times. They're isolated. just seems natural that they would get into that fantasy world, at least, you know, my words, about this whole thing and just run through the scenario because it takes time, doesn't it? You have to acquire weapons. You have to acquire the gear, the clothing, the planning, the location. Oh, that's right. Takes, yeah, no, this is that does need to be planned out, and you know, to a certain degree. And so we saw this in the San Bernardino shooting, right? Yeah. They they got the weapons years before they were they were going to do this. Yeah, the book is actually I was referring to was On Killing by David Grossman. It's a great book in terms of understanding desensitization and how culture um, may be affecting the long term influencing of the earlier the younger generations now millennials and how that could impact the wave of violence we may see in the future. So that, coupled with the narcissism stuff from Twenge, I think gives us a good sense that we're, we should all be very concerned about this moving forward. So taking off on this whole theory of yours about narcissism being at, maybe at the core of this, yep. I've always believed that the media is driving a lot of this. And my my belief system is based on the fact that I've long been one of those talking heads that the media talks to anytime mm-hmm. there's an event, and and I get the standard uh, type questions. And then now that we have, uh, you know, all the cable channels, when you have like San Bernardino, uh, it's been on the 24-hour news cycle. Mm-hmm. So you get a lot of bang for your buck if there is something to your theory about narcissism. They get a lot of feedback, assuming they survive the incident. They get a lot of notoriety. They get a lot of airtime, a lot of play that might identify, you know, what their particular problem was or, or, or what cause maybe they're trying to put forward. Mm-hmm. Well, absolutely. And, I, and, I, and you see that in the actual mass shooter study um, that the FBI put out. When you looked at the uh, nurse that shot up the nursing school and the medical school in Arizona. Um, and, of course, that was something that Mike Corcoran and I wrote about in our uh, second edition of our book on violence risk assessment. Mike found uh, and was the first one to publish that the manifesto for that shooter was actually used by Cho, uh, Virginia Tech. So when Cho, when Cho's stuff came out, he was quoting the nurse uh, who had put in a manifesto at the Arizona shooting. And, of course, we know the Columbine Incidents are constantly being resourced and reviewed and researched by subsequent shooters, including the Sandy Hook shooter. So media does matter. And a lot of these mass murderers do go and research other mass murderers um, and want to, in essence, best their record. You know, this kind of goes back to game theory in a way. 
and you know it's almost like their score is X, so I want the score at the highest, higher than their score. Um, and of course, the score being people that are murdered or wounded. So, yeah, there are a certain percentage of those shooters that do look at that. All the shooters, regardless of whether or not they plan to survive or not, they are making a statement that they know will be heard, as you said, and seen and experienced by millions of people through the media. And whether or not they survive or not, their names are going to be known, their exploits are going to be known, uh, their lives are going to be dissected, and they'll be more important in that role as a mass shooter than they would have ever been in any other possibility in their lives. You know, it's kind of the Andy Warhol thing, you know, 15 minutes of fame. They get years of fame or infamy, but still, whether or not they survive or not. And they know that, absolutely. The theme is that it's really a mental health issue, first and foremost. Yes, it's a it's a psychological issue, first and foremost. Whether or not it's a mental health issue or not is a whole other question, right? Because some of these people are, are psychopaths, which is, a whole, which is kind of one of those things that we can't really cure that very much. So it's not a health issue as much as it is a condition. But yes, it's a psychological issue, absolutely. And, and it's also a sociological issue in the sense that I think we have this surge of people that, you know, have a society that is becoming more and more belief that it's all about them. They're more individualistic, not as collectively oriented. And we know that from our culture versus, you know, some Asian cultures and others. The more cultures move toward a individual perspective versus a collective perspective, the more violence occurs because it's, they, less impact about what you're going to be doing to others, less training and empathy and understanding your impact on others, and therefore it's all about you, which, of course, then feeds the narcissism, which then, of course, feeds this wounding. So, yes, it's a psychological, sociological issue. Absolutely. I'm speaking to Jim Kaywood of Factor One, a California-based company that specializes in threat assessment. Jim, we could talk about this for days. I'm not sure if we'd uh, solve any problems or get to the root of any particular incident, but man, this is a very interesting and very useful information for our listeners. Now, you mentioned that you wrote a book some time back. Uh, give me the name of that again. Yeah, it's Violence Risk Assessment and Intervention, the Practitioner's Handbook. Second edition came out in 2009, and Mike and I are looking at the potential. The publishers asked us to do a third edition, but yeah, it's a it's a book we put out because we wanted to practically address these types of issues and give people real concrete steps they could take uh, to manage this type of thing. It's out there. It's on Amazon, and you know I would encourage people to take a look at it. Obviously, the, the field keeps changing and growing, and it's certainly something that can give a nice baseline. I'll put a link in the show notes so people can okay. find it easily. Jim Kaywood, thank you so much for your time, and uh, will you come back again? Absolutely. Good to talk thank to you, Chris. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I try to present a variety of educational topics, but keeping with the theme of making places safe for people and property. The subject matter of Crime School is influenced by your feedback. So I encourage you to tell me about your ideas for future discussion. I'm always looking for a guest. If you have a particular crime or loss prevention expertise, you have a special legal background about liability, you have an interesting crime prevention product to review, or if you're a crime victim with a motivating story and outcome to share, I want to talk to you. Now, I'm not very active on social media. I'm old. What could I say? 
I don't quite get it, but I'm trying to learn. Meanwhile, I appreciate those who are active in social media to share these episodes to attract others who may want to learn and benefit from this content. In fact, if you have an iTunes account and you want to help others find Crime School, please leave us a five-star rating and review. That will really help us be discovered. I invite you to join the Crime School community. We're all like-minded people. You could provide your email address on any web page, any opt-in form on the Crime School website. In this way, you'll receive immediate notification of any new audio or video episodes published, or any special events for that matter. Thank you for participating in Crime School and for doing your part in making places safe. This is the Crime School Radio Show with your host, Chris McGoey. We invite you to comment on today's topic and join the Crime School community. For more information and show notes from this episode, please visit crimeschool.com.